Hi, I'm Rick Ryman, host of Audibly Speaking, a show on the stories behind the stories of our time. By sounding out on these stories, we give voice to them and hear them for the first time. From the news of the day to history and literature, from audiobooks to leaders on the stump, we examine the backstories of our time, audibly speaking. This is a recording of Chapter 2, Reframing Memory Between Individual and Collective Forms of Constructing the Past. In this path-breaking article by Elida Osman from 2006, she tries to define the concept of collective memory, which at that time was highly controversial and in fact remains so, particularly among historians. She points out that there is a lack of theoretical rigor in the concept of collective memory, and she tries to supply that with this article. I think that the problem of lack of rigor has been substantially solved by Professor Osman in the many years since, but at this time she wanted to make it clear what exactly collective memory was and the various different forms that memory can take so that the reality of collective memory can be more clearly grasped by more people. Now, everybody admits or acknowledges that there is such a thing as individual memory. Anybody who has a brain can remember, and everybody agrees that at the individual level, there is such a thing as memory. But many scholars, including social analysts as well as historians, argue that the only type of organism or thing that can have a memory is a thing with a brain. Susan Sontag, for instance, denied that there was such a thing as collective memory. She writes in a very lengthy quotation that Professor Osman includes in her article that photographs that everyone recognizes are now a constituent part of what a society chooses to think about or declares that it has chosen to think about. And it calls these ideas memories. And that is, over the long run, a fiction. Strictly speaking, there is no such thing, says Sontag, as collective memory. She insists that all memory is individual, unreproducible, because it dies with each person. What is called collective memory is not a remembering, but a stipulating that this is important, and this is the story about how it happened, with the pictures that lock the story in our minds. And another word she uses for this, which she denies is memory, is the word ideology. And she says ideologies create substantiating archives of images, representative images, which encapsulate common ideas of significance and trigger predictable thoughts, feelings. End of quotation by Sontag. Well, Osman points out that there's something strange about this limiting definition by Susan Sontag. And this is a direct quote from Professor Osman. According to Sontag, she says, a society is able to choose, to think, and to speak, but not to remember. It can choose without a will. It can think without the capacity of reason. It can speak without a tongue, but it cannot remember without 
a memory, end of quotation. And so she's pointing out that Sontag is contradicting herself. But perhaps the best way to wind our way through this labyrinth and try to help people understand why there is such a thing as collective memory is to break it down into its various formats, as Professor Osman points out. And she has four formats that she speaks of. One is individual memory. The next is social memory. Then there's political memory. And then there's something called cultural memory. And the first two and the last two are qualitatively different dyads from the other, as she points out when she defines each of these terms. But once you define these terms, it becomes possible to see why there is such a thing as collective memory. Although Professor Osman does not like the term collective memory, she prefers the term cultural memory for reasons that will become clear. Now, when we talk about individual memory, according to Professor Osman, we are talking about something that everybody can grasp and agree on. It's pretty clear what happens in the case of personal or individual memory. People have experiences from the time they're very young. And in these experiences, they embody something that engraves itself upon the memory in the brain. And that something is what we call personal experience. They own that memory. The memory is unique to themselves. It is something they alone have experienced. But it's all individual. Now, what we refer to by individual memory, then, is basically experiential. It's something people experience. They own this memory. They can't really transfer it. They can paraphrase what it means to them but it's not going to mean the same thing to somebody else that it means to them. And it is personally experienced and it is personally embodied. Okay, so everybody understands what that is. And again, it can't be transferred from one individual to another and it dies when that individual dies. So it has a very brief life. Then she turns her attention to Maurice Holdwachs, who introduced the term collective memory in 1925. What Holbach's contributed was the notion that we get our memories from the groups to which we belong, or we get our memories from social interaction with others. When I say a group, it could be a group of as few as two people, or it can be a larger group. But Holbach's was mainly thinking about family, a group of that size. And he argued that if we didn't have people to talk to, to share ideas and experiences with, we would not have what we call memory. Memory is something that we articulate and put into words and stories because we have people to talk to, to reason with, and to share experiences with. And in the course of all of those things, the individual develops memory but it is always in collaboration or communication with other people. Now, this is what we call social memory. Social memory is something we have within the family. Members of the family share different experiences and they have a family lore, which they carry with them all the days of their lives. 
and they may pass these down through word of mouth to the younger generation, who may even manage somehow to pass them down to their children. But the lifespan of social memory, which is a rather direct form of memory, but it's still social, it's still based on communication and the context of other people in the room, so to speak, that lifespan is about 70 to 100 years. So it's quite limited in terms of time. It's also embodied as well because the memories we develop in communication with people who are important to us is memory that is important to us at the individual level. And so we embody these memories too. They're not just buried in our consciousness. They're not just memorized to be forgotten quickly, perhaps, or to be ignored. But they are memories that are important to us, that we draw upon with a certain degree of regularity. We embody it. We don't forget it. But we do lose it when we die, quite obviously. And that's true whether we're talking about individual memory or what is called social memory. Now, when we talk about political and cultural memory, we're talking about a very different thing. And of course, both of those types of memory are the kinds of memory that Sontag and many, many historians do not believe can possibly exist. She does not like the terms that these historians use. Among the terms they use are terms like ideology, like Sontag did. Sontag says that what we call collective memory is simply ideology. It's simply what a group believes is important, and they signify the importance of it, and they demand that members of the group subscribe to these points of view, and she calls that an ideology. Well, Professor Osman doesn't like ideology because it tends to have a pejorative connotation, especially when it was used most heavily in the 1960s, 1970s, and 1980s. But since the 1980s, we don't much talk about ideology. We talk about collective memory, and it means much the same thing, but yet it's different at the same time. We don't disparage collective memory, those of us who believe it exists, and that's a major difference between the use of the term ideology. As Professor Osman pointed out, the term ideology is clearly derogatory. It is never used for our own way of thinking, but always for how others misunderstand or distort what we hold to be true. And so this is one reason she doesn't like the term ideology. And of course, she doesn't believe that collective memory is anything like ideology. So let's talk about her views of political memory and cultural memory. Once again, she says there are four individual memory formats. And we talked about the memory of individuals and we talked about social memory. But let's talk about political and then cultural memory. Now, Political and cultural memory are what people refer to as collective memory. But if we are more specific with terms like political and cultural, we'll get a better grasp of what they mean. And she says the most important difference between individual and social memory on the one hand and political and cultural memory on the other, I'm quoting here, lies in their temporal range. 
So, for example, individual and social memory, she reminds us, is embodied. It's integral to our being. We obviously engrave it in our brains. And we have these memories as long as we exist. But on the other hand, political and cultural memory, she says, are mediated. And they have to be re-embodied in order to become a kind of memory. So, in other words, as I take it, political and cultural memory are taught, or they're communicated by museums and monuments and messages from on high. That is, there are certain national texts or tablets, as it were, of belief that people are supposed to embrace as members of the political community. And they are supposed to embody it, but before they can embody it, they have to learn it. They have to be taught it. It has to be drilled into their heads, as it were. And once that has happened, the people are in a position to memorize it, remember it, or forget it. But if they choose to remember it without having to memorize it, that is, if they choose to make these lessons signify something important to themselves, a feature of their identity, they will not forget it, and they will instead embody it within themselves, much as they have embodied the memory they have at the individual or social level. But this is something they get through a mediation from a top-down source. They don't have the experience themselves of learning about national history or national memory. They don't have the experience themselves of writing the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag. They receive the Pledge of Allegiance to the flag from their schools. They learn it there. And for a time, perhaps, they disregard its significance. But over time, many of the members of the community embrace this education. And it becomes something more than a thing that's taught and possibly forgotten. It becomes a thing that is not forgotten because it is embodied by choice by the individual to whom it is taught. Why does the individual choose to embody it and remember it and regard it as real and important? Because it is a signifier of their identity. If they want to be part of the group, this is the price of admission to the group. And they don't see it in that transactional way over time, but rather they see it as something they believe in because they are members of this group and vice versa. They are members of the group because they believe and embody this memory that comes down from on high and is not something they experience directly, except in the sense that they learn it in school or in rituals. But again, learning something and embodying it are two different things. And they only embody it because they embrace it as a signifier of and, and a necessity for their identity, for their place in the community, which is very, very important to them. But it is true that this type of memory is top-down memory as opposed to the bottom-up memory of personal experience. But once it's embodied, it becomes just as real a memory 
as a memory that is engraved in the brain by personal experience. So, we are talking about political memory when we talk about nations and states and perhaps churches or businesses. And we're talking about cultural memory when we're talking about groups that are somewhat larger and more amorphous, perhaps, groups like ethnic groups, religious groups, perhaps, cultures, which are large and expansive, and groups that have perhaps an even more profound meaning to the individual than perhaps political memory is. Although both political memory and cultural memory are memories that are top-down, that are mediated, and that are embodied only over time through a process that is much the same in both the cases of political and cultural memories. The really important thing about political and cultural memory is that these memories can be transferred. These memories do not die with the individual or the family. They don't die after a hundred years. They can be extended into the future to an almost limitless degree. Hundreds of years, even thousands of years, has been the experience of mankind in the transference of political memory and cultural memory. One thinks of ancient Egypt, which changed very little in a period of more than 3,000 years. And that is the classic example of cultural or political memory and the longevity of that type of memory. Now, Professor uh, Osman goes on to say that there are two types of memory banks, as it were, within cultural memories. There is the canon, and then there's the archive. And the canon are the things that are most important or considered to be the most important things that the cultural group needs to remember. And the archive is a much larger mass of material that is part of the legacy that people are supposed to carry with them as members of a cultural group. But it is not something that is part of the individual's memory at the conscious level or at the daily level. It's recessed. It's latent. It is somewhere in the back of people's minds at most, but it's being kept alive by the chroniclers, by the memory custodians of the group. And from time to time, items within the archive can be reaccessed and become part of the canon, and vice versa. Parts of the canon can become dismissed over time or relegated to the archive, because over time, there can be decisions made in future generations about what parts of the canon to continue or what parts of the canon to exclude. But there are many memories that are not really salient at the conscious level for decades or even longer, but they are part of the heritage of the cultural memory group nonetheless, and they are waiting in the wings, so to speak, to be revived or reaccessed. They're never completely forgotten, 
but they are temporarily forgotten. So that's an interesting concept that she has. Then she talks about how all this has taken place in Germany. And she points out that there was a remarkable shift in German post-war memory in the new millennium. And what she's talking about here is the fact that after 2000, Germans began remembering the subject of German suffering during the Second World War. That is, the Germans suffered in three different ways during the Second World War. That signifies a kind of topic that the Germans, quite rightly, believe makes them objects of sympathy. But these are three forms of suffering that had been pretty much ignored during the period 1945 to 2000. One of these was the driving out of East Germans from Eastern Europe and their expulsion back into the interior of Germany, often violently, often with lots of deaths along the way. Germans who had occupied Eastern Europe during the Nazi period were driven back into Germany because of hatred towards the German occupation. So that's one type of suffering. A second suffering was the carpet bombing of German cities, and a third was the organized mass rape of German women by the Soviets when the Soviets invaded Germany at the end of the war. Now, these three forms of suffering were suffered by civilians, and that's why one would think that they would be objects of sympathy and that there had, would have been some discussion of these groups between 1945 and 2000. But according to Professor Osman, there was surprisingly little of them. And instead, what Germans even remembered, much less the rest of the world, was the experience of the Holocaust and German complicity for the Holocaust. And these various forms of German suffering were pretty much buried. But then, after 2000, they came back. And this is an example of a latent memory that was sometimes mentioned here and there during the 45 years after 1945, but which never really caught fire in the German imagination. It was never really an object of debate or discussion or a subject for books that were popular. Nothing like that happened. But then, all of a sudden, after 2000, it became a burning subject. What was latent became a part of the canon of collective memory, something that was important for the group to talk about and to center and to bring out of the periphery and into the centrality of public concern. So that's an interesting example of how collective memory can change seemingly on its own. And she has other examples of that. She also talks about the fact that in the 1950s and 1960s, what had been claimed as a political memory was reclaimed as a social public memory. And here she talks about the expulsion of the Germans in Eastern Europe. There were political groups that wanted to keep the suffering of these people in the public mind. And they tried to advertise the problem. They tried to demobilize. They tried to attract supporters, but they were not really given much credence at the 
level of the state. The state did not regard them as worthy of recognition or of support. There were museums, but they were only lightly attended. And yet, after 2000, this memory was brought back into focus. A particular political memory, as she writes, was reclaimed as a national political memory. She writes, If we ask why public acclaim had been withheld from these memories for so long, we may find an answer in Gunter Grass's statement, One iniquity displaced the other. In other words, according to Grass, the injustice to the Jews had displaced the injustice to the East Germans in Eastern Europe. And she talks about a normative valuation being placed on one subject as opposed to another. And this is another aspect of collective memory, that it isn't just that you have these two different memories that exist on the same plane. They don't exist on the same plane. There was a sense, which never ended and never will end, that the suffering of the Jews at the hands of the Germans was incredibly more significant than the suffering of the East European Germans, who were forced to go back to Germany after the war, after they had occupied illegally Eastern Europe during the war. And so there was a normative decision, which has never been changed, that the suffering of the Holocaust and the victims of the Holocaust is far more important than this other story. So it isn't just that one iniquity displaced the other. There was a normative judgment that it ought to displace the other. And so what we have after 2000 is the elevation of a concern for the Eastern European Germans after 1945 but not to the same level as the mandate to remember the suffering of the Jews at the hands of the Germans in the Holocaust. That hierarchy is a part of the collective memory. That normative hierarchy is such that it's never going to change, and it should never change. And so what we have, yes, is a debate that happens alongside debates about the Holocaust. But it's not that this newfound concern with German suffering is going to displace the Holocaust as the central concern of the German state and people as they find a place for themselves in Europe, a place of respect and welcome after the long trials that have succeeded the war. As Professor Osman writes, so far German national memory remains defined by the frame of German guilt of the Holocaust, even if other memories of German suffering are admitted by its side. This normative frame allows for heterogeneous memories on the social level, provided that they do not challenge this hierarchy of norms. When Grass wrote that one iniquity displaced the other, as Ostman writes, he obviously overlooked this hierarchy of frames and the normative power of the national memory. We have therefore reason to hope that this mutual eclipse, German guilt and suffering, will not go on forever, 
it is no longer one iniquity displacing the other, but the acknowledgement of German guilt and responsibility that also makes place for the acknowledgement of German suffering. That is, one permits the other. It does not displace the other. Those are some of the profound contributions by Professor Elida Osman in her pathbreaking article from 2006, which we have summarized here. Thanks for listening. That's it for today's episode of AudiblySpeaking.com. New podcast episodes appear on AudiblySpeaking.com approximately once every two weeks. Please subscribe to Audibly Speaking on iTunes or whatever podcast aggregator you enjoy. Until next time, this is Rick Ryman. Happy listening.